everybody. Before this episode begins, I just want to put a quick trigger warning. This podcast episode contains descriptions of abuse, trafficking, and murder that some viewers may find upsetting. Viewer discretion is advised. Please click off the video if any of these topics are triggering to you, and hopefully I'll see you next time. Okay, um, now that I've done the trigger warning and I've given people a sufficient amount of time to click off if any of those topics are triggering, um, I do just want to apologize because it is so windy outside. Um, And to the extent that I am human, I unfortunately cannot control the weather, which is kind of frustrating. But um, hello, everybody. How is your day going? My day is going pretty well, actually. I had some cinnamon rolls, um, homemade from scratch, obviously, for breakfast. I was very excited about that. So yeah, my day's going good so far, but I do have to write an essay for my English class, so we'll see how that goes. Um, Today, we are continuing our exploration of the 50 States Unsolved series, where we look at one unsolved case from each state with West Virginia. So I don't know much about West Virginia, and yes, like I said, Liz, last time that is a recurring theme of the podcast um but i do know history wise virginia and west virginia used to be one colony but i believe it was the civil war um there were i believe it was farmers i think um who didn't support slavery and they decided to split off from the confederates and i believe the confederates had their strong point in like richmond west virginia or something um so that's really all i know about west virginia and virginia um i do know that both of them are named after queen elizabeth the first as in the virgin queen um so uh let's get into it this is the case of the solder children first as usual let's do some background of the case so george solder the patriarch of the family was born in sardinia in 1895 in 1908 george and an older brother immigrated to the u.s however shortly after arriving in the u.s when george was only 13 his brother decided to return to italy and this left george essentially on his own And here's a quote I found, Um, quote, he found work on the Pennsylvania railroads carrying water and supplies to the laborers. And after a few years, he moved to Smithers, West Virginia, smart and ambitious. He first worked as a driver, then launched his own trucking company, hauling dirt for construction and later freight and coal. One day, George walked into a local music store and met the owner's daughter, Jenny Kiprisani, I am so sorry to anyone with Italian heritage that just listened to me pronounce that. Anyways, um, she immigrated from Italy when she was three. So shortly after, um, the couple married and had 10 children, which maybe this just reflects like a change in societal values, but I could not imagine having 10 children. That just sounds like so, so much work and really expensive too. Um, But at the same end, I'm not going to shame anyone. I just think it's very interesting that they had 10 children. Anyways, um, they later settled in Fayetteville, West Virginia. Something interesting about Fayetteville is that it had a small but very active Italian-American community, and this actually plays into our later theories, so commit this to memory. 
Um, I do actually want to talk about the Italian-American community because this case takes place um, in 1945. So this is World War II, um, like Stalin, Mussolini, that kind of thing. And I think from a history lens, we're kind of talked taught that, you know, Mussolini was like universally hated. But like any part of history, there's a lot of complex ideals to it. Um, but either way, anyways, so now that you've committed this to memory, just reiterating what I was saying earlier, um, like any hardened father, George held strong opinions about everything. I'm, I'm not joking here. Everything from current events to business and even politics. And one of the theories plays into the fact that apparently... Um, George Sauter had been bad-mouthing Mussolini all over town, and some people got very upset about that. Um, anyways, something interesting, and it really makes sense given the trauma that George has experienced, he never really talked about his childhood or why he left Italy, and speaking as someone with a diagnosed trauma disorder, it makes sense. I don't like to talk about my trauma... I don't like to talk about my trauma. I mean, maybe I'll joke about it because, you know, I'm a Gen Z or I cope with humor, but it's just such, I don't know, it kind of just gives me like an anxiety attack, like even just thinking about it. So I can really understand. I mean, imagine being taken or going willingly um, from your home country to a brand new place and then just being left there. Oh my gosh. That that sounds terrifying and I am no psychologist, psychiatrist. Um but speaking from personal experience, if just given like social stigmas about getting therapy and things like that, I cannot imagine that he was okay. I mean, this just sounds very terrifying and I do very much feel for George. Um, anyways, so there was a fire, which I kind of have to preface this for, but I'm going to give you a list of odd occurrences that happened before the fire. So a mover was trying to get work from the solders and they kind of meandered and went back to the bottom of the, ha- the back of the house, excuse me, um, and pointed to separate fuse boxes and said, quote, this is going to catch a fire someday. Um, so this was strange because the local power company, uh, around the same time had pronounced the electric wiring fine. Another event occurred when a life insurance salesman stopped off, stormed off after realizing that George and Jenny would not be purchasing from him. So here's a quote of, um, what he said, quote, your goddamn house is going up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed. You are going to be paid for the dirty marks you have been making about Mussolini, end quote. So I don't often declare cases as solved, um, but this guy is so suspicious and it's very weird that, you know, he like very obviously and explicitly says like you will pay for the dirty remarks you've been making about Mussolini. Had to uh, adjust my mic a little bit. I hope the sound is coming out a little better. Um, But another thing was that the Sodder boys um, recalled that just before Christmas, a man was parked in the highway watching the younger children on their way home from school. So something I want to add here is that we don't know if this happened on multiple occasions or really any details besides that there were people watching the children in an uncomfortable way. Um, Okay, now we need to get into the actual case. So the fire. Just a heads up, um, there are a lot of children 
here and it's very hard to remember all of their names. So I am so sorry. Um, anyways, on December 24th in Fayetteville, West Virginia, um, Christmas Eve, 1945, a fire broke out in the Sauter home. In less than an hour, 45 minutes to be exact, the entire house was burned to the ground. The two parents, George and Jenny, along with five of their 10 children. Oh my. Okay. So here are the missing ones. Um, John, 23, Marion, 17, George Jr., 16, and Sylvia, who was two, um, and also their eldest son, Joe, uh, who was serving in the military. So all of those people made it out alive. The other five children um, were presumed dead in the fire. So Maurice, 14, Martha, 12, Louis, 9, Jenny, 8, and Betty, 5. Though death certificates were issued for each of the five children, no bones were found in the ashes of the house. The fire broke out in the house at around 1 a.m., so George got out of the burning house and noticed five children missing, like any good father does, and went inside to rescue them. However, when he went inside, the staircase was engulfed in flames, so he ran for the ladder that always leaned up against the house, and he found that that ladder was missing. Next, he thought that he could drive one of his two coal trucks uh, beneath the window and climb into the children's room, but neither truck was working, despite the fact that they were both operational before. Um, another key thing about this is that there's there's a lot of contention um, about whether the engine was removed or just tampered with, but either way, these trucks aren't working, and they were working the day before. So both daughter Marion and a neighbor tried calling the police and fire department. However, the phone lines had been damaged or maybe cut at the Sauter's residence and at the neighbor's house. The fire department was two and a half miles away and it would be another eight hours. Uh, Yes, yes, I said eight as in like the time difference between, I don't know, Denver and Paris. I'm sorry. Why do I know that? Um... Uh, anyways, eight hours, as in four plus four, as in, I can't think of any other numbers that equal eight. I don't know. Anyways, um, again, don't get me started on <laughs> really just how bad the police were in this case. I mean, I understand it is Christmas Eve. You want to spend some time with your family, but come on, eight hours to walk two and a half miles. I walked two and a half miles in like two hours. I know, I know, I walk very slowly, but like seriously, come on. So when the police finally did arrive, the fire was burned out and they pronounced the fire. um, They basically just said that it happened due to faulty wiring and kind of just moved on with their life. Okay, just like normal, we are now going to look at some other evidence and discuss theories. So um, our first piece of evidence is that about a half hour before the phone, the fire broke out, the phone rang. So it happened to be a wrong number. And on her way back to bed, Jenny noticed that all the downstairs lights were on. The curtains were open and the front door was unlocked. Marion was asleep on the couch. um, So Jenny left her there, shut off the lights and locked up and went back to bed. 
Just as she was falling asleep, there was a loud bang on the roof, followed by a rolling noise. Okay, so to understand why this little anecdote of Jenny's is so damning, we need to go over what happens in a faulty wiring fire. So when a fire starts of faulty wiring, the wiring will not connect correctly. So the lights should not be on in general. And when they do, a uh, fire is created from the vibration. So I don't really understand the, f- um, the um, faulty wiring fire, but there is just one very key thing that you need to know is that under no circumstances, the lights should not work um, like continuously, if that makes sense. Like they might flicker, they might just go on and off rapidly, but they should not be on in a steady stream of light because Jenny would have said they were flickering and they were not flickering according to her anecdote. So if the lights are not supposed to work with a faulty wiring fire, it's an odd detail for Jenny to remember that the lights were on. Okay, let's see. Next, a telephone repairman said that the phone lines appeared to have been cut, not burned. Um, So that's very interesting. Let's see. A witness reported seeing a man leaving the scene of the fire with instruments used for removing car engines. A few days after the fire, Sylvia found a hard rubber object in the yard, which Jenny assumed was the noise she heard on the roof. George identified it as a napalm pineapple bomb. So that's very interesting that there was a napalm pineapple bomb um, that was most likely the rolling sound that Jenny hears before she goes to bed. Okay, so no bones were found, but uh, after the accident, when no bones were found, Jenny started doing some experimentation with different types of animal bones. So when she set them on fire, bones always still remained. She even talked to a morgue employee who confirmed her suspicions. Quote, even after bodies are cremated for three to four hours at 2,000 to 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit, bones still remain. If a fire burns for 45 minutes, barely, then it will not get hot enough to fully cremate, comma, let alone damage the bones. So this is basically just saying that there should be bones there, and it's kind of sus that there not bones okay our next piece of evidence and the last one before we get into theories was sightings of the children so after the disappearance reports came flooding in there was there were so many i think um george traveled as far as like new york city to check out sightings of the children but Reports were flooding in about sightings of the children, including a woman at a Charleston. Um, so I'm thinking they're saying either Charleston, South Carolina. I, th- I think that's a real place. But either way, that's that's pretty close to West Virginia, I think. I'm not very good at geography. I am so sorry. Any West Virginia um, East Coast listeners that are listening. Anyways, um, a woman at a Charleston hotel said that four of the five missing kids were staying at a hotel with two women and two men of Italian descent. The adults were hostile when anyone tried to interact with the kids and they only stayed at the hotel for one night. So very suspicious there. So let's get into the theories. All that. Okay. Theory number one, the there's really only two theories in this case, but the first one is that the children died in the fire. So the evidence supporting this theory is that the children were not found and were given death certificates. Now let's go into all of the evidence that doesn't support this theory. Ooh, yeah, there's a lot. And my computer's almost dead. <laughs> I am so sorry. This is this is great. This is I'm sorry, this podcast episode is such a hot mess. I might need to re-record this. 
So the evidence that doesn't support this theory is the ladder is gone. The lights were on hours before the faulty wiring fire. The pineapple bomb noises. Um, Where are the bones? Why were the engines either tampered with or removed from the coal trucks? Who was watching the children beforehand? And why were the phone lines cut? Okay, so for the rating, if zero is impossible and 10 is, in my opinion, this definitely could occur. I think that this is so strange that there were all of these strange occurrences like lights being on, phone lines being cut, and, you know, people watching the children. Kind of creepy. But the most damning fact to this theory is that there were no bones. Because you could you could make the point that everything else could be circumstantial, you know, ladder being gone. Um, I don't know, maybe a neighbor took it, lights being on, the that's kind of weird. Um, Maybe she's not remembering it right. Maybe she didn't tell us that it was flickering. Um, Pineapple bomb noise, that's pure conjecture. That's just what the family thinks happened. Um, Engines removed from the coal trucks. Yeah, I can't really explain that. Um, Who was watching the children? Maybe no one. You know, maybe they were just being so paranoid that they saw something that didn't occur. And the phone lines being cut, uh, I can't explain that either. <laughs> but either way, for the theories that there is so much evidence against these, um, and the bones weren't found, that's the most suspicious thing. I am going to give this theory a 1 out of 10. Okay, theory number two. The children were kidnapped, um, possibly to be trafficked. Full disclaimer, I already really believe this theory because it just checks all the boxes for me. All right, now we get into the evidence supporting this theory. Um, People watching the children in the days leading up to the fire. You know, why are you watching children? I think it's very weird, Um, especially just in the proximity it it occurred in the fire. The ladder missing, I could maybe put that up to speculation, but that and the engines either being gone or tampered with, I think those together combined to equal like someone was trying to prevent the children from being found. Um, the fire not being electrical, as in like the rolling noise, the lights being seen on, um, bones not found, sightings of children after the case. But I will admit that sighting is very interesting because it says four out of the five missing children. So it's like what happened to the other children? Um, The only thing that I can think of that doesn't support this theory is like, I just don't have a motive here. Like why abduct the children? Why? Um, you know, I'd say there's either like a personal thing in most of these kidnapping cases that I read. There's like a personal motive, like, oh, like, you know, like exes taking back their children or something like that. But the people most likely to be trafficked are in like high risk situations, like living very transient lifestyles. So it wasn't these children but I mean trafficking can happen to anyone so I don't know maybe but it's just it it has a very circumstantial case which I really like but besides the motive I don't know like what is the motive you know because if I really can't get past this motive piece so that's why I'm giving this a seven out of ten Oh my gosh. Um, That was our case for today. Thank you so much for listening. Please come back next time for a new episode of the 50 States Unsolved series. If you liked this episode, please leave us a five-star review on Spotify. And for more information about this case, please check out The Children Who Went in Smoke from the Smithsonian Magazine. Thank you. Bye, guys. Love you.